0: Job chapter 1, verse 6. One day the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord asked Satan, Where have you come from? From roaming through the earth, Satan answered him, and walking around on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? No one else on earth is like him, a man of perfect integrity who fears God and turns away from evil. Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Haven't you placed a hedge around him, his household, and everything he owns? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he owns, and he will surely curse you to your face. Very well, the Lord told Satan. Everything he owns is in your power. However, do not lay a hand on Job himself. So Satan left the Lord's presence. One day, when Job's sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and reported, While the oxen were plowing and the donkeys grazing nearby, the Sabaeans swooped down and took them away. They struck down the servants with a sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. He was still speaking when another messenger came and reported, God's fire fell from heaven. It burned the sheep and the servants and devoured them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. That messenger was still speaking when yet another came and reported, The Chaldeans formed three bands, made a raid on the camels, and took them away. They struck down the servants with the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. He was still speaking when another messenger came and reported, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. Suddenly a powerful wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on the young people so that they died, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job stood up, tore his robe, and shaved his head. He fell to the ground and worshipped, saying, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked will I leave this life. The Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Throughout all this, Job did not sin or blame God for anything. or to the Lord
1: to play uh, a song that I think captures some of what um, the journey of grief is like before the kids are dismissed for kids church Um, but we can listen to that and hear that and then we'll um, begin again from there.
2: I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart Down in my heart I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart Down in my heart And I'm so happy, so happy, so very happy. And I'm so happy, so happy, so very happy. I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart Down in my heart I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart Down in my heart and i'm so happy so happy so very happy and i'm so happy so happy so very happy And I can't understand, and I can't pretend that this will all be all right in the end. So I'll try my best and lift up my chest to sing about this joy, joy joy, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll,
1: Thank you for that, Rachel. The kids are invited to Kids Church with Kelly today. On another day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came with them to present himself before him. And the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, "'Have you considered my servant Job? There was no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. "'Skin for skin,' Satan replied. "'A man will give all he has for his own life, but now stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face.'" Very well then, he is in your hands, the Lord replied, but you must spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores, from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. Then Job took a piece of clay pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, Are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. He replied, "'You are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept the good from God and not trouble?' In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. When Job's three friends, uh, Elphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namanite, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could barely recognize him." They began to weep out loud, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him, because they saw how great his suffering was. The word of the Lord. This is the second half of that reading from the book of Job today. This is similar to, I think, when we went to either Leviticus or Particularly Ecclesiastes, where we hear something terrible and we're called to respond with the word of the Lord, thanks be to God. Uh, It would be hard for Job to say, although he says it somewhat after the first instance. And in the second instance, he too replies with, you know, who are we to not accept the good along with the bad? Should we only praise God when trouble comes? The hard part is, last week we met Job, and Job was, in some sense, the, uh, the happy guy, happiest guy at the beginning of any movie or book. Big family, big flocks and herds and ox. Happiness abounded in his life. He was one who was upright and blameless and feared the Lord. So much so that that in in this scene, God even calls him that in the heavenly courtroom, that he is this one who has maintained his integrity, his dignity, stands as such in the world. And he is um, the greatest in the East, it says, this one who, who has extreme righteousness throughout him. As we talked about last week, if a movie or a book begins that happy, you know scene two is what? Problems for the person who exists in that way. The height at which we met Job means that there will be great challenges that come for Job. Last week we also looked at the, the types of wisdom too so far that we've discussed the last summers that the Proverbs have the sense in which the, things are ordered correctly. That if we aim correctly, if we um, live upright and holy lives, that that will be true for us. That we will receive sort of what Job has received from God. And while exceptions abound, that is still largely, in many cases, a true script. That if we set our house in order properly, that if we live justly, that we um, neighbor well, that we follow the advice of Proverbs, for the most part, things do work out. In comes the teacher, Kohelet, from the book of Ecclesiastes, who argues, not exactly, they don't always work out. At some points, he'll have his ultimate sort of reality card, which he says, even if it does, you still die. Um, Just like, you're never going to win an argument with that guy. Um, uh, But there's a sense in which he sort of wants to be the exception to that. Now, I think what the biblical wisdom literature is doing is drawing us into that tension in that we see that creation is ordered in a lot of ways. We see that we, if we can mirror that order in our lives and aim correctly to the type of life that God uh, has for us, that there is some relationship which there which causes it to work out. And yet, because we live in a fallen and sinful and broken world, it's not always the case. Or in the case of, of Kohelet, at least if it is, we all die. Um, and that seems to be frustrating for us. There's the end of, of the book of Ecclesiastes, which sets that in right, but says that everything will sort of be revealed in time and that we but trust in that. Well, it is worth listening to, but the extreme that there is no meaning is wrong. To the another tension, so last week we jumped into the book of Job, which, which asks different questions, but certainly belongs in that context of wisdom literature. What is the way in which we should live our lives? And what if the way in which we have been called to live and which flourishing has come in Job's case finds out to have failed greatly? Um, it was easy for Job to live in that sort of way when everything was fine and working, but now that all of this has happened to him, his wife is probably correct. You still maintain your integrity. There's nothing worth it now. Curse God and die. That's the point at which the book of Job moves to. But we have this tension within the biblical corpus around what is the way to live wisely in the world and does it always work out? In this scene, we'll see several themes that set up the book of Job from the end of when he's happy to the challenges in the divine courtroom to the suffering and where we leave him with his free friends. Now, what's interesting about the structure of the book of Job is it has a bit of um, a heaven, earth, heaven, earth, or earth, it starts on earth, Job's relationships, moves up to the heavenly courtroom, moves back to earth for Job's bad news, back up to the heavenly courtroom, moves back to earth, and when you expect it to move back to heaven, what happens is, is Job is surrounded by sort of a courtroom of his friends. People gather around him. And the rest of the book, and this is, I just want to this is from the Bible Project I know you can't read this, but it does give some sense of the structure, is made up of these dialogues between these free friends. And so what we have here is chapters one and two, the prologue, um, three through 37 which is all of Job's friends debating on why this happens, how the universe is structured. At times, they'll be like, Job, surely you've done something wrong because this is why bad things happen to people. At times, other questions will come up. Job will defend his dignity that he has done nothing wrong. And then Job gets his final statement here. Um, And the way that those things go, these three, Job begins to question his life. The dialogue with the friends go, friend, Job, Job. Friend, Job, friend, Job, cycle one. Friend, Job, friend, Job, friend, Job, cycle two. Friend, Job, friend, Job, friend, cycle three. There are three cycles of that. Job makes his last statement, which is sort of about wisdom and such, but then what happens from there is a fourth friend who isn't mentioned at the start. Um, yes, 32 through 37 Um, A friend shows up, a fourth friend, and he sort of summarizes, wants to be a judge. Commentators are divided, like whether he just like sort of comes on the scene and is like, I'm so smart, I know what's going on. Um, That maybe comes from an interpretation that he's young, um, but also there's a bit of the way in which his summary is is a bit over the top. Um, And so we'll get to him, and then the dialogues with God that take up the next section, that God appears on the scene after uh, Elihu talks. These take up 38 to 41. Job's restoration in the end and the epilogue. Interesting for our sake right now is the prologue is written in prose, regular sentence structure like most of our books are written. The epilogue is written in prose, regular sort of description of the world and this, that, and the other. All of the middle is written in poetry, Very complex Hebrew poetry from beginning to end. One of the reasons why they think, uh, particularly Elihu is a later edition, because he seems to have a different sense of the Hebrew language than the earlier ones too. Um, I was talking to Ryan afterwards too last Sunday. One of the theories about the book of Job, which we'll kind of touch on today, is that the prose beginning and the prose end were the earliest form in the ancient Middle East of a book about a righteous sufferer which in some sense is there was a a man who was good. There was a divine courtroom that said, why is he good? What is he good for? Is he good just because he gets rewards? He is tested twice in this earliest form of the story. Um, He passes both tests, and then we get the um, restoration of all things to him. That would be like this common folk tale. What the Hebrews do is they think that's a little bit too clean. So they add a debate into that tale about what goes on. Um, what is the order of these things? How does this fit with our wisdom literature and our tradition? And even then, there's, the, there's some theory in which the, that it existed as the man debate, and a later um, condenser, and this is what happens with ancient Near East, adds the God debate as sort of this... Um, Praise into what would be the response, and then even Alehu comes later. Um, All this is to say that Job has this weird collection of coming together to bring us to the point where we are today and sort of walking through this book. And first off, I want to say none of this is meant to say whether Job existed or not, or whether this is a factual book or whatever. Those are all different questions. If we're reading it as I mean, part of the problem with we heighten up those concerns is essentially the book comes about just the story about bad things that happened to this guy, which you don't think would get circulated forever. What happens on why we turn this over and over again and return to it over and over again, this story, is because we're asking the question of what this means to us. How does this relate to the world we live in? How does this story of wanting things to work out and them not working out relate to the way in which we try to order our own lives? How do we respond to suffering in the world? How do we live in such a way? And so that's a bit of the structure of the book of Job. Just because I had to do it for my sake is, here's how we'll be going through the book of Job this summer. Um, Last week was the intro. This week we'll talk about Job and the Satan, the divine courtroom scene and the suffering. David's preaching next week. I'm excited to hear how he will correct everything that I've done wrong in these. David has different questions from the book of Job that I think would be good for us to hear, and I'm excited to listen to it when I get back. Um, Then Job's lament, uh, curse the day I was born when Job finally opens his lips in chapter three. Like I said, there are three cycles of the debates with the friends. We'll do one Sunday on each of the cycles. This is designed to keep me moving from the book through the book. If we don't do this, then I'll get stuck in one cycle, and we'll never learn anything from the others. Um, we'll do Job's final speech about wisdom. Um, we'll look at uh, Job's fourth friend who appears. Uh, two Sundays on the Yahweh speeches, the Lord's speeches to Job. Job's restoration. And then the last one, which would be Labor Day Sunday, the theologian... Um, Karl Barth and others have a different way of reading the book of Job that I'll try to summarize that Sunday, or at least give an overarching theme to it that I think rings true from that. So that's where we're going with Job. I don't know if you're excited or not, um, but that's sort of the structure at which we'll walk through the book of Job. And I think one of the reasons to look at it that way is what became clear to me as I was preparing this is I know almost nothing about what's said in the book of Job, I know a lot about one through the end of chapter two. I know a little bit about the God dialogues. What's interesting is the restoration one, um, as I've talked to people about preparing for the book of Job, I get more questions about how weird the restoration is than joy over it. Um, So we have the restoration, but it's sort of like, who are these new kids? Where did these people come from? Is everything really fine? It's like the restoration, well, I think if you're is actually meant to be a good ending to the story. But because we don't know the story well, we just raise all sorts of weird questions about the ending instead of seeing that God has restored to Job what was lost. And so the challenge in doing it this way, um, David, David, and he'll maybe say this next week, he was like, you got to do at least six Sundays on the first two chapters because that's where all the questions are. Um, and I was thinking, but that's why we always misread the book as well. Um, it's hard for us to get into the book that has 30 chapters of debate, but none of us really know what's said in the debate. And often that, too, we, we don't hear the truths and the untruths that are mentioned there as well. Um, as we walk through that, I think the challenges we'll be hearing some of the things that Job's friends say are things that we say to explain suffering as well. So if you ask why we keep reading this book, It's to indict us as we come along people who suffer as well, to teach us to suffer alongside people, to be with people in their suffering. Um, So that's sort of the structure of of what we have there. Uh, The last thing I'll say is that I had Rachel read um, a longer portion from The Crucifixion of the Gospel of Uh, in Mark, um, which is to say that for Christians we have a second righteous sufferer who is Jesus Christ. And this sufferer suffers uh, agony in a different way, but it is God who vindicates and restores him as well. So for Christians, reading the book of Job always sort of draws us back into um, questions about what does the righteous suffering of Jesus mean? Now when I was um, Man, sixth grade, um, I saw a play in which they tried to portray the um, negotiations in heaven, similar to the Book of Job, that happened between Satan and God on how um, God's willing to say, "I want humanity back, I'm willing to offer you my only son." Satan says, "Great deal. I'll take it. He kills the sun, and the sun rises First. Thing that, if you're familiar with um, modern Christianity, most of us think of that gambit within the books The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Um, That Aslan offers himself up, but the witch does not know a deeper magic that when an innocent victim dies for somebody who's guilty, the tablets are broken and he comes back to life. Uh, I always thought that was weird and then I went to seminary and learned one of the earliest theories of how the atonement, the cross worked in Christianity was similar to that. It's called ransom theory. This idea in which Satan is holding humanity ransom and Christ pays the ransom to get us back. Um, The question of whether Satan knew that that was a a gambit that he would end up with nobody because Christ rises from the dead. is a different question but that's sort of what goes on there. Um, Point being is I think it's good to keep that always in mind first and second off it's really hard to come up with passages of scripture to pair with job um uh there's job is referenced in james we'll read that one again last week the patience he's referenced in the book of ezekiel in a in a kind of strange way which we read last week um but job is unique in the questions it asks in the biblical corpus and the way that we think through these things and so um I'll try to tie them together, the second and, and third readings. This Sunday psalm was a lament psalm. Um, but Job's uniqueness uh, should really stand out to us. But today, and, and David is right, there are two big questions. Um, the, Lord considered, uh, the Lord said to Satan, "'Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil.'" This is perhaps the biggest question that a lot of people have from the book of Job is, I think there's two questions loaded within this. Is this how God and heaven really works? Does God call together all the angels, pick one of us to throw out to, to Satan, listen to Satan about what we're doing wrong, and then strike us in our um, issues? A, a lot of people really struggle with this, and I think it's a good question, um, What's going on here? And then the second question is, what the heck is Satan doing there? Um, That's two different questions that I think we have right here at the beginning of the book. What I want to say is, um, it's hard for us to sort of deal with the fact that this is probably... A narrative description of how these things work that's not meant to be taken only literally as how it works. So, for instance, this this scene that's set up is the same way an ancient Near Eastern emperor would meet with his people. He would call all of his advisors together, and he would ask the advisors, how are things going throughout my world, my kingdom? Um, And one of them would be this one called uh, the Hasatan, which is what we translate as Satan in most of our translations. Ha means the, um, so it would be the Satan. Um, But not only that, Satan doesn't mean Satan, it means accuser. Um, And so in some sense, when these counselors, these kings would call people together, they would ask someone, the accuser, how things were going. And the accuser's job was to sort of be the court prosecutor, to sort of help the king see how his empire is going. In another way is that the, the Hasatan sometimes is described as the um, the ears um, the ears and uh, eyes of the ruler that he goes throughout. So this question, "Where have you been?" I've been going back to and through throughout the earth is a question of of asking the one who's supposed to be the king doesn't go out into the empire all the time. He asks one who is going back and forth how things are going. I'll just go to this quote because I think it helps a little bit. It's on the back of the bulletin. Yet the Bible regularly uses v- very human, even crane, crude language to point to the unimaginable reality of God. It is an article of faith in my theological tradition that believe God is able to use our holy and human language to bear faithful witness to God's own truth. As John Calvin was suggested, God talks baby talk to us in the scriptures since it is the only talk we can possibly understand. The true indicator that we have heard and rightly understood this is to be found not in theological statements, this is how heaven really runs, but in faithful praise and service to God. I have no interest in dissuading people from believing what they believe about this scene, but I would say that it's not hard to see how you would portray this scene in the ancient Near East as one of sort of how would this thing be set up? I think that's the first real question here, is that this seems like a way of magnifying up from the world we exist in to say something about God so that we can have the rest of the book. Um, The second thing, before we get into is the Satan, which I kind of tackled, is that... uh, Starting next week, and it was supposed to start this week, but is is dialogues with the dialogues. All of us have different stories of suffering, pain, anguish in our life, of reading the book of Job, of questioning pondering the book of Job. We've sat with our crude or good understandings of it. Mine was a crude understanding of it uh, for much of our life. We've seen um, things in which we have no answers for ourselves, or we've devised our own answers to be able to answer the questions of suffering, pain, and anguish. And so my point is we dialogue with the dialogues that happen in Job right, is just to be a fellow dialogue partner with it. If you have your own theories and this, that, and the other, I, like on certain things, like when we're in the Gospels, I'm like, no, nah, that's not right <laughs> um, to some degree. Um, with, with Job, it's just so hard because it's so personal um, and it's so mysterious throughout this book and complex. There is so much going on. So as I say these things, my goal is to be a help. um, And if it's not a help, just leave them behind. (laughs) Um, Because the fact of the matter is it's hard for us to know all that's going on in these scenes, um, in this ancient Near Eastern way of preserving this for us. Um, Going back to is this Satan? um, it's clear that the angels, the sons of men, are the angels gathered together, and this one's job is sort of to be a prosecutor of that. Is one to sort of press the king on his blind spots so he can see things. Um, like I said, in the translations, English translations almost always drop the the. It's and he said to Satan, um, "If you add back in the the." it raises a different question. He says back to the Satan. If you add back in the translation of Satan as accuser or attorney or whatever else, there are several different options, but I think accuser is perhaps the best one, then the story takes on a different shape and form. The only reason why I bring up why that might be helpful is because this becomes a distraction to the rest of the book. Most of us, myself, when I say that I mean me, I struggle to move forward in the book because as the friends are dialoguing, I'm still thinking, what the heck was going on in the heavenly courtroom scene? Um, And what's so odd about that as we press into that ourselves, um, it's dropped from the book instantly. None of Job's friends mention it. Job never says, you know what I bet happened? Somebody came up there and caused these problems for me. Um, And then in God's responses, it is not brought up again either. It's as if to say the solution in this journey of suffering and pain, of not having the answers to the questions, is not solved in knowing these facts. And I think that's why we struggle with it so much is because we think the answer to what happens in the book of Job is to be found in this scene. Um, And so... I never took a screenwriting class, but the inciting incident is an unexpected event in a story that upsets the character's status quo. For the sake of our reading of the book of Job, what I want to argue is happening in the divine courtroom scene with no answer for why and anything like that is for the reader, it is an inciting incident. It is meant to be the thing that spurs the story forward. It is not meant to be where we park forever and ask questions endlessly about what happened. That's actually almost becoming Job's friends about the incident, um, becoming these people who just keep wanting to explain it away and away. And if it was, if it had the explanatory power to, to uh, heal, um, I think it would have appeared in God's dialogue or in the restoration section. But as quickly as it's introduced, it's not a theme at all in the rest of the book. Um, And so that's my uh, argument. The the, the last thing is I think it causes us, focusing on this theme, causes us to miss what is perhaps one of the biggest questions of the book of Job. Does Job fear God for nothing? But then also causes us to miss the restoration. There's a restoration that happens at the end of the book. And in our perpetual sort of pondering of the beginning, Um, We miss, one, the God dialogues, what the point is of that, and two, the restoration at the end. Um, So I'm going to go forward um, and we'll that word is. I mean, I don't have deep answers to those questions. I think that complicates it a little bit on what's happening there. Um, I do think that uh, many of the commentators pointed out is even if we accept it as crude language for how this happens, this is in some sense preserved for us as revelation. And we have to listen to it as such too. I don't intend for it to be something we can just toss off and move forward. Um, But moving forward today... (laughs) The question that the ha-satan, the accuser, asks is, does Job fear God for nothing? One of the big questions in this book of wisdom literature, it's not the only question in the book of Job, but perhaps in this early part, one of the biggest ones, is, is the relationship between God and humanity one of just us doing good and receiving blessings, and therefore we have faith, or is there a point in which faith has a disinterested aspect of it? We don't pursue God just because, in in Job's case, the material blessings that we receive in the end. And so the accuser's question is a question that you can imagine people are asking in this sort of Wisdom literature like way. What is the point of faith? If the point of faith is quid pro quo, just a reciprocal sort of thing, does it seem like much faith at all? Does it seem like things should be governed that way? Empirically, if, if it becomes one of those things in which you can clearly see, well, that's how the universe works, then what's to believe that anybody is actually having faith rather than just reaping the benefits of said faith? Um, and this is where it gets complex because there are psalms and other portions of the Old Testament that draw us to that God knows our inmost thoughts, God knows these things, which sets this scenes in different light, read in in sort of uh, relationship with them. Um, But this question is, is is there a point to Job's faith other than the gifts he receives? And this sets up the first gamble in which Job um, just receives terrible things. And uh, these messengers in the scene that Jack read for us come concurrently. It's almost, again, it's like that dark comedy feel we talked about is Job's having a great life Four people come at the exact same time with four different messages of how he lost everything. One appears, um, your ox are gone because of human elements. Another appears, your sheep are gone because of lightning from heaven. Uh, you could say that's divine or you could say that's a natural world problem. Um, another one, your camels, we're all stolen as well. And, and the dark, comical nature of it is, and I'm the only one who made it. All four of these guys have to say, and look, I'm the only one so you could get this news. And then the saddest of all, the fourth comes, and his family had gathered for one of those parties we were told about in chapter one. Wind comes to all four corners of the house, and it falls upon them, and they pass away. All this happens at once. And One of the reasons why Rachel, I asked her to play that song today, is Job's response. At this, Job got up, tore his robe, shaved his head, then he fell to the ground in worship, which is such a weird... Now, that Hebrew phrase is a little bit more ambiguous, but it's often used for worship. And he falls to the ground in worship and said, "'Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised.'" But Job, when he receives all this bad news, he takes on the ritual elements of mourning, shaving the head, um, tearing the robe, um, but then falling to the ground in a confession of faith. And it's one that I don't think denies the realities of it. In the song that Rachel played, there's there's this way in which it starts with that, I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart, which is, as many of us know, supposed to be a happy song. And what it's played in that way, it's a sad song. And what the question is, is like, Because of the way the world is, I will rise up and still sing of that joy. And yet it breaks into sort of more dissonance as you listen to it. And what comes on the other side of that, funny enough, is not joy. (laughs) Um, The song, if you had, if I had written it, because I'm not an artist, would have ended with a happy joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Like, ah, see the tension, it goes from sad to happy. See, we've resolved the story. But because the woman who put that together is much smarter than I am, she has it resolved when peace like a river. And not in joy, um, but not in sadness in the same way either. It seems like there was a meeting there in the afterward of either it's got to be joy or it's got to be depression in a different truth, in a different reality. And the language I think we use for that is the language of faith. It meets in this way of faith to say that despite the pain, despite the suffering, despite me trying to reclaim joy again, what can be revealed to me is that when peace, like a river, um, not in joy and not in sadness, but in a settledness, I think that, that names the language of faith. Similar to just Job's response here, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I depart, the Lord has... Uh, the Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the Lord's name be praised. Um, and yet people, and this is the dangerous part about this, in suffering, people are broken. Um, Job's friends, some of them, it will hint to the point of, in your suffering and testing, God is trying to prove you right. And yet all of us know that in times of suffering and pain, and as we've observed the world, it does not resolve into when peace like a river all the time. It breaks people. And that's not dispositionally because they're weak or anything. Again, the temptation to be one of Job's friends is very high all the time with us. It breaks us because it doesn't add up. To have faith and resilience on the other side of that is only a gift from God in some ways because it's not natural to us to be able to make it through to that point. Um, in this first contest between Job and the Satan, the accuser, and all this, Job did nothing by not charging God with any wrongdoing. Job does not curse God to his face. The next story, the angels come again, and there's this relationship between Job and God that I think we often miss because we move through the story so fast, um, he goes about, it's mere the other one. Have you considered my servant Job? There was no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shove evil. And he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me to ruin him without any reason. There's a way in reading this in which God is not particularly joyful about what's happened. He's been incited to do it, but he likes Job. The Satan... The accuser, skin for skin, replies, a man will give all he has for his own life, but now stretch out his own hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will curse you. This leads to him being struck in from head to toe with sores. Um, and Job sits there in agony. Um, so he wince and strikes him, and then Job took a piece of glass pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. It seems to be that the scraping of the glass is, is to itch. Um, is to itch that his sores and the anguish that he has now. And his wife, who in the Christian tradition has normally been called um, uh, one of Satan's party, um, comes to him and says, are you still trying to hold on to your integrity? Curse God and die. Um, The Jewish tradition at times has tried to portray her more sympathetically, but Job is right when he rebukes her almost in all the commentary. But there's a bit in which his wife is saying, Um, redemptive history has not played a part in Job. The people have not been rescued from Egypt, this type of thing. It's just in the plain reciprocal relationship with God. Her point to him is, you've lived rightly. You've done great. We know that you're blameless and upright. She doesn't know this, but God has even said that you are blameless and upright. Why don't you just commit theological suicide? Curse your God so that you can die and go in peace. There's some sympathy in this. That's one of the midrashes on this, attempts to give her some more sympathetic portrayal to have seen his suffering. Um, and I think if you've been through suffering, um, occasionally you will have friends um, or partners who come alongside of you and say, I don't know why you're trying to maintain the lie. Um, sometimes they're right, sometimes they're wrong. In Job's case, the, the thing here is, is, will he curse God? which is part of the question, is how is Job going to speak of God? And what it says, in all this, Job did not sin in what he said. Um, Job makes it through this last one. And in the Hebrew, it says, did not sin with his lips, which some commentators say. In the first one, he, he does it with accusing God of no wrongdoing. In the second one, it says he doesn't sin with his lips, which means on the inside, he might have felt antagonism towards God. Which, fair, he might on the inside feel some antagonism to God. But the bet, if you remember, is that Job will curse God to his face. So even if Job is experiencing some um, question of what's going on here, which would be entirely human and will come up as we go through the dialogues, um, is not... um, if you're going to say, well, on the inside, he obviously felt something, it still doesn't make the hasatan, the accuser, right. It still makes, he has not cursed God to his faith. Uh, um, and so, in all this, Job does not sin in what he says. Um, this brings us to his three friends who, who come Um, to sit with him as he mourns and one of the sadder parts it says when they go out to comfort him from a distance they couldn't recognize him and they begin to weep aloud and they tear their robes and sprinkle dust on their heads and they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights no one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was many people are right to point out that job's friends are good friends Most of us, when we have people come alongside of us in our suffering, they come with answers or solutions or don't want to remain in silence. But Job's friends are capable of sitting in silence for seven days with him. And not only that, the beginning of chapter 3 is after this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. They don't even start the dialogue that comes after. Now, Job's friends will make plenty of heirs ears throughout this, but they um, are those who come together to comfort their friend, to sit with him in silence, and to be with him. Which oddly um, brings us to the end of today's passage. Um, I know these things are supposed to end happier than today's sermon does. Um, such will be the challenge with the book of Job. Um, But I do think what we've seen so far is this question that brings us and draws us deeper into the reality of our own sufferings and the sufferings of others who come alongside of us. Um, And then what does it mean to suffer rightly and wisely in the world will come up as a question as we go through it. But I hope what we can see is that the book is now set up to begin these dialogues on questioning these realities, these things. How will we explain the suffering we see in our lives, oftentimes like Job's friends? How will we attempt to um, remain in the place of faith while honestly confronting what happens to us? It's a great challenge as well. And we have the witness, who one who goes before us, who for the joy set before him suffered the cross, we have one who goes before us as a sufferer, we have new teach- we have teachings in the New Testament echoing the Old Testament that call us into suffering as the way in which we become to know God as well um, which is perhaps one of the themes we'll see the most when we make it through the book of Job is the sufferings cause him to go into a direct dialogue with God. Job doesn't say much um but but God appears and questions him um And the revelation of such is able to happen because of his suffering. Um, And so, yeah, that's... Let us pray. God, in your wisdom, you have preserved for us this odd and wonderful book. Confesses of realities that are too great and too wonderful for us to understand But it prompts us and causes us to look at the questions anew. What is faith for? Do we fear God for nothing? Do we love you out of the goodness of our hearts? Or is it because we expect something in return? Do we find you near to us um, in our sufferings? as one who comes close, similar to Job's friends. All these and so many questions have been prompted by the beginning of this book. But we ask for ears to hear and eyes to see how you will bring about your reconciliation and redemption of Job in the end. May we walk that path with the one who is also a suffering, innocent model for us, in your son, Jesus Christ. We ask this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.